Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Right now, you can get 33% off of any purchase when you enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE over at tweakedaudio.com. Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, tweakedaudio.com. Enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, get 33% off on earbuds, headphones, mic'd versions, non-mic'd versions. They come in different colors, they come in different styles. They're all super high quality with a lifetime guarantee. Tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the object of your perception. This is something you can ingest while completely inert. Are you ingesting this? Are you completely inert? Hello, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have a very good show for you. Uh, Stuart Onan is the guest. Uh, Excited to have him here. His new novel is called West of Sunset. It's available now from Viking, and it happens to be the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, the TNB Book Club. Uh, TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you not in the know, is my online literary magazine and community. It has its own book club. Every month we pick a title, uh, the members get that book, and then I interview the author here on this program. So if you want to sign up for the TNB Book Club, go to the Nervous Breakdown. Dot com and click on book club in the menu bar. It's a good thing to do. Uh, so, like, what's going on? Everything's good here. We're doing well. My wife's doing well. That's pretty much all I think about. I think about work stuff, money stuff, and then I think about my wife and our uh, pregnancy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're expecting a boy this summer. Uh, and uh, for those of you who really have never heard this show before, uh, you know, we've, we've had uh, some miscarriage drama in our lives, uh, over the past couple of years, I've talked about it on this program. Uh, but it looks like we, you know, we're doing okay on this one. My fingers are crossed, but I found that, uh, I'm very, uh, paranoid about the uh, pregnancy, maybe more so than my wife. Like every time she goes to the bathroom, I, I get worried. I don't know if anybody out there's ever been through this. Am I the only one? But when your wife has a history of miscarriage, 
it tends to happen in the bathroom. So whenever my wife goes to the bathroom, I usually stand outside the door and just hover, (laughs) you know? And it's like, you know, she's in the bathroom and I'm like, everything okay in there? You good? And she's like, I'm, I'm peeing. Just trying to pee. So we're good. I just get worried whenever my wife goes to the bathroom. But otherwise, we're good. I just stand outside the door with my ear pressed against the door whenever she goes to the bathroom. But otherwise, we're fine. I thought I'd read some mail before we get started. I got a letter from a uh, listener named... Uh, Asia, Asia, I could be mispronouncing this. It's entirely possible. My apologies. If so, uh, Asia writes, dear Brad first, or maybe it's Asia. I don't know how to pronounce it. ACIA, uh, dear Brad, she writes first, I would like to congratulate you and your wife on the wonderful news. All best to your family. My partner and I just found out we are expecting our first child. I suddenly find myself overwhelmed by a combination of kinetic excitement and sheer unrelenting terror. I'm a recent premium subscriber and have found your podcast to be a welcome distraction from this new reality and from these long and sleepless nights. My question is this, what is your writing schedule? Do you block out specific times to write? Are you ever quote off limits to your family? How do you keep it all going creatively when there is so much real life shit to be dealt with? How do you make writing matter? I apologize if you've answered these questions before. I haven't yet made it through all of the episodes. Thank you for the time and energy you have invested in this project. You, Brad Listy, are a shining star. Sincerely, Asia. Asia. Thank you. Asia Asia. Thank you for calling me a shining star. I appreciate that. I don't think anyone's ever called me a shining star. Uh, there's a lot to go over here in this letter. First of all, congratulations to you on expecting your first child. Um, I understand being overwhelmed with uh, emotion including terror. (laughs) And also thanks for uh, being a premium subscriber. I got to plug that. Anybody can do that. You should subscribe to premium people. It's how you get access to every single episode. You get 50 for free, but then, you know, for 75 cents a month or, you know, something like that, you can get access to the full archives wherever you go right there on your device. So, uh, you, uh, said that she finds the podcast, a welcome distraction from her new reality. I think that's maybe as good of a way to describe this show as I've ever heard. It's a great way to distract yourself from reality, new or old. As for being sleepless, all I can say is uh, just wait. You think you're sleepless now? (laughs) Wait till that baby shows up. But it's a good thing. It's a great thing. So congratulations to you. As for my writing schedule and how I handle it all, um, you know, to be really frank with you, I don't always, I'm not the best person, uh, to point to as an example of someone who keeps their shit together with regard to a writing schedule and balancing that against family and financial obligations. It's a trick to pull. I haven't mastered it and I need to be better. Um, but I do get work done. Uh, I do also spread myself too thin as a general rule. I'm not one of these like really ascetic, very disciplined, streamlined writers who like, you know, don't do anything else besides read and write. I'm doing podcasts. I'm editing stuff. I'm writing screenplay stuff. I mean, I'm always dabbling part of my problem. 
I can't say no to projects. I have multiple interests. Um, but when it comes to creative work and being able to get it done, uh, I have to give my wife credit. She's great. Super supportive. You sort of need that. You know, I'm lucky in that way. And as far as, uh, you know, trying to keep writing vital, as far as that goes, I, I, you know, I think the biggest thing is to read. Sounds obvious and elemental, but I think that's it. Input equals output. If you find yourself feeling, uh, you know, like, like you're lacking in inspiration or like the well has run dry, try reading. You need input. You know, and you're, if you're reading books that inspire you, chances are you'll find the time to write. That's been my experience anyway. So I wish you well, and uh, I congratulate you again on uh, on your uh, impending child. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Stuart Onan. His book, West of Sunset, uh, is available now from Viking. It's a terrific novel. And uh, as I mentioned, it's the official pick of the TNB Book Club for the month of February. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Stuart Onan. I'm in Pittsburgh, PA, and it's, I think, something like five degrees here. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm sitting in the living room downstairs instead of up in my freezing office. Okay, yeah, and and is Pittsburgh home? Like, is that where you were raised? Yeah, uh, born and born and bred here. Uh, we were away for thirty years. Came back in two thousand eight. What what prompted that? Um, the kids were through high school, and we wanted to live in the city. And we looked around for different cities, and uh, Pittsburgh is just super affordable, and it's a great place uh, if you're you know, a writer or an artist. Yeah, no, I've been hearing that. Like, I've been reading it on the on the web, and then I've had conversations with a couple of authors on this show who live there. Like, it's sort of up and coming. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, you know, my, my whole family's still here. I'm the only one who ever left. Um, so it seemed like a, a nice fit. So we came back about seven years ago, and it's the best move we ever made. Awesome. Well, I want to get to childhood in Pittsburgh and growing up there and everything, but I want to start with uh, the book, uh, West of Sunset. I want to start with F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, you know, who is the protagonist of your new novel. It's a bit of a departure uh, for you in the sense that you're sort of uh, known – uh, as being a guy who writes uh, very well about uh, ordinary folks, you know, you write, uh, you know, in miniature about, uh, you know, the lives that most people don't necessarily think about. And in this book, you've taken on a character that lots of us have spent time thinking about, and you've taken on 
a world that is very glamorous. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious decision or if this is something that happened more like, were you making a conscious decision to kind of challenge yourself in that way? Or was this something that happened organically and more by accident? I think it happened more organically. Um, and I just became interested um, in his time there. Um, and the more that I, I wrote about him, uh, the more that I look at the book now after having written it, it, it seems that he's he's one of my typical kind of uh, heroes in that, you know, he's already hit rock bottom. You know, he has the crack <laughs> up in 35 and 36. You know, he's in debt. Um, you know, his wife is in the insane asylum. His daughter's off at school. He's kind of alone. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any prospects. Um, so he's somehow got to get up off the mat and find a way to go on. And those are usually the characters I'm drawn to. Okay. So, and, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, too, it's, uh, it's, I don't know if the, I'm, I'm not schooled enough in the history of American celebrity to know if this is exactly right, but he is sort of the prototype for the, uh, you know, celebrity flame out. And I think part of that might be because he wrote, uh, those Esquire essays and really, you know, let people in and, and told them what he was going through. But uh, is that your read on it as well? Is there anyone who who predates him, like in terms of uh, that kind of public uh, immolation? <laughs> um, in terms of writers, um, probably not, although, you know, we all know that Twain died relatively broke. Um, and, of course, there's Mr. Poe himself. Yeah, there you um, go. Yeah, who, who I've, I've written about as well. But, you know, it... it it's that idea of celebrity. I mean, but both both Zelda and Scott were huge celebrities from about 1920, you know, till about 1928 or 29, when you know the whole economy crashed as well. And so they they stood in for the 20s. You know, being the most highly paid American writer and the most famous American writer for you know a few years, and then coming to nothing like that. Um, yeah, I mean that that's why we're drawn to their story. Um, but, I mean, that's not the part of the story I'm really that interested in, I think. Okay, well, Again, it, it's, that, it's, well, it's that starting over part. It, it's that, you know, that second act or third act or fourth or fifth or sixth act, and that how do you keep going on? How do you endure, you know, after all that other stuff is gone? And that's what it is that draws you to those types of characters, is just trying to figure out what it is that keeps them going? Yeah, I mean, really, that's it. I mean, you think of somebody like Manny and, you know, Last Night at the Lobster, um, there's no reason that he should even be there. He should just say, fuck it, you know, and, and leave and say, you know, I'm not going to do this. But he feels some sort of responsibility um, toward the people that, you know, are closest to him. Um, and he decides, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gut this out. Um, and I think I see that over and over in, in, in my characters. I mean, Patty, obviously, and the good wife, whose husband goes to prison for 25 to life. Um, she could sort of cut and run there, but that's just not part of who she is. And so, um, what ke- what kept uh, Scott Fitzgerald going those last you know three years of I, his life? I, I think he had a great, great devotion to his family. He had a great devotion to Zelda, um, and he certainly had a great devotion to his daughter Scotty uh, off at the Ethel Walker School. Um, he was the one who was going to try to keep the family or hold the family together, even though at this point they had no home. Um, and I think a lot of that came from his. His upbringing. His father, though he was an alcoholic and a, and a great failure, um, his father was a very courtly man and, and a man who um, was very worried about being proper and, and taking care of your responsibilities in life. And I think he instilled that in Scott. There's a wonderful little eulogy that he writes about his father um, in saying, everything I know about being a gentleman, I learned from him. Um, hmm. so, so when Scott was sober, uh, he was 
the, the most pleasant and the most responsible of men. Um, and when he went, you know, the other way, when he went drunk, he was just a terrible, terrible, you know, asshole uh, and a violent person and would always end up getting in fights and, and you know, getting beaten down for it. Yeah, um, I, I, it's funny because there's sort of a, you know, it's like the Hemingway Fitzgerald um, relationship and, you know, how, how primary that is when people talk about the lost generation and, over the years, like reading bio, uh, you know, biographical stuff about both guys, you know, one gets the sense that like Hemingway could be like, a really mean guy. I guess he could be a really fun guy too. But I always feel like, so, like from what I've read about Scott Fitzgerald, he was a, he was a, a kind man. He really was. He really was. He helped a lot of people. I mean, even at the end of his life, he, I mean, he was giving Nathaniel West a blurb for Day of the Locust, you know, and helping out Bud Schulberg with his work. He was very generous as an artist. And, and uh, obviously in helping to sort of discover Hemingway and to, to get Hemingway Scribner's, you know, he's very generous in that sense. Whereas Hemingway, I think, was much more of a competitive kind of jerk right. that way. Right. Um, but but at, at some point, they were both competitive in that they knew that the work was really what mattered and how good the work was. Was the, the work good or not? It didn't matter what the review said. It didn't matter how many books sold or not sold. Is how good was the work there. Um, and they were they were both very very keen on that. I mean, certainly all the way to the end of his life, Fitzgerald was you know revising and working and, and making things better on the last tycoon there. Um, and obviously, when Hemingway could no longer work and work at the level that he was used to, he he had to get rid of himself. That was it. Yeah, uh, I think that's true for a lot of writers out there too. I, I think the I think the enmity between the two of them has been overstated. Um, and, and seems more posthumous than anything. Even at the very end of, of Fitzgerald's life in 1940, Hemingway sends him a very warmly inscribed copy of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Really? Yeah, I mean, they, like, they feel like they sort of measured, they measured themselves against each other. Or is that, is that how you feel? Um, I, I think Hemingway did a little bit. I, again, it's, it's that flip-flop. I mean, in 1921... Fitzgerald is the most highly paid, most famous writer in America. We get to 1935-36, Hemingway is the most popular and highly paid writer in America. Has their work changed necessarily, or have they gotten better or worse? Probably not. And I think that was a thorn in Hemingway's side, you know, knowing that Fitzgerald would probably always be a little deeper and higher writer than he was. Right. Um, uh, Tender is the Night, which you look at now, is, is you know a possible borderline masterpiece. When it came out in '34, it was kind of a flop critically and commercially. It was kind of a flop. Whereas Hemingway's uh, To Have and Have Not comes out in '36 and is a gigantic success by all means. But mm. you put the two books side by side, and you say which is the better book? You know, 95% of readers are going to say Tender is the Night is a better book there. Right. And I think that's the kind of doubt that Hemingway had when he looked over and saw what Fitzgerald was doing, thinking, you know, as, as, as famous as I get, as much as I get paid, he's always going to be that guy. And I'm always going to be this guy. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, mean, I feel like when he read uh, Gatsby, I want to say I remember reading something uh, about his reaction. I think it, it, it was very apparent to him right away how good the book was. Um, and I think it uh, fed some of his lesser moments with Fitzgerald. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, yeah. But you know, it, it's you know, it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough. You know, when when you know the guy you're measuring yourself against is, is maybe the best writer in, in the language in the world. Yeah, he was. I mean, that's the other thing about Fitzgerald. He was so talented. Um, and I guess you you pair that with like that obsessive uh, work ethic and re, you know revising and. 
Uh, and well, that's why that's why he was so good because he worked so hard. You know, everyone thinks he just sort of sat down and just rolled off of his you know pen. But, you know, he busted his ass on that stuff. Well, and the thing, too, is that when I think about how much he drank and how many, like, terrible hangovers and, you know, uh, you know, sh- shameful moments he must have had due to his alcoholism, like, just to, to, to be able to write that well uh, while also managing that kind of substance abuse almost makes the writing uh, achievements that much more impressive. <laughs> the, the super highly functioning alcoholic. But, of course, you know, it, it shortened his life. You know, both both things did. Both, you know, the alcoholism and his work ethic. I think in the end, he, he definitely worked himself to death. Yeah. So how did he end? How did he do it? I mean, he was like, he's drinking. Would he go dry when he was like really deep into a book or would he just work through the hangovers? He said he would go dry. He said that, he, he you know, nothing of, of any, you know, nothing of any length was ever written on underneath stimulants, as he called them. Um, and I think I agree with that. Um, for his stories, I think, you know, he drank and drank, and then he dried out for a little bit, and he wrote a story and paid the bills, and then went back to drinking. And there's so much lost time there. Right. And that's, that's the problem. Um, and he loses a lot of time from, you know, from Gatsby to Tender. It takes something like nine years. Hmm. Um, yeah, short, and, and, short, and, short stories are more conducive <laughs> to, like, the drinking life, you know? like you, Right, and he wrote something, I want to say, between 150 and 210 short stories in his life. It's just an immense number of short stories, um, and, and most of which were published and most of which he got paid for. So that was how he paid the bills, and I mean, that's, that's not good for you either. And I think that's where Hemingway takes exception with, with how Fitzgerald is, is selling that writing for, you know, big bucks instead of you know, just hunkering down and working on the novels. And in the end, Fitzgerald agrees with him. He writes to his daughter, Scotty, in a letter in 1939 or 40, says, you know, after Gatsby, I should have realized this was my line. I should have just stuck to it and forgotten about everything else, hmm. and, which is probably true. I mean, we, we, want, we want a lot more novels out of him and, and way fewer short stories. Right. So, okay, uh, h- historical fiction. Um... You know, like setting out to write a book like this, focusing on the last three years of his life, you must have done a ton of research. Like, was that a like a daunting process? Like, what did when did you get to the point where you felt like, okay, now I've I've done enough research and I'm ready to write? Like, what did that process look like? Uh, well, it was kind of constant. I mean, I, I opened up and I did probably three to four months of just straight research to say, you know, where am I starting this story? Where do I have to start this story? You know, I needed that jumping off spot, that idea of, you know, when he decides, yes, I am going to leave Zelda here in North Carolina and go west. Um, so once I got that in hand, I just started to write. And as I was writing, I would sort of feed in whatever research I needed at that particular time. Um, but luckily, I mean, we have so many letters from him. Um, and from Zelda and from Scotty, um, from Ober, from Max Perkins as editor, that we know where he is and basically what he's doing during you know those months. Right. Um, so I could get it, I could grab onto some sort of timeline and say you know what do I want to show the reader? You know what kind of proportion am I looking at? What do I have to show the reader? What's necessary? What scenes do I want to write? Um, because you've got to be you know terribly selective. I mean you got three and a half years to work with there. Um, and, you know, I, there, there's just stuff that you know, had to be in there. Um, obviously, his, his first great love is Ginevra King, who's the basis for Daisy Buchanan and a lot of the, the women in his early writing. Um, she, in 37, 
realizes that he's in Los Angeles and she's visiting Los Angeles. So she sends him a telegram and says, hey, I'm going to be there. We should go out to lunch. And here's a woman he hasn't talked to for 25 years who broke his heart and left him, you know, all of a sudden saying, hey, I'm in town. <laughs> and I was like, you know, well, I, you know, I got I to gotta have that. That's a huge scene, the lunch that they have. You know, there is a little bit of coverage in it in one book by a professor named James West, who's, who's right now, I think, a leading Fitzgerald scholar called The Perfect Hour. Uh, but other than that, there's really not much to it. So it's, it's kind of wide open in terms of how I want to write that scene. Well, that's pretty rich. Uh, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty rich vein of mine. I mean, you know, you Oh, think... my gosh. It's, yeah, it's incredible stuff. There's incredible stuff there. I mean, the, the vacations that he and Zelda would take away from the asylum that were supposed to acclimate herself to the outside world eventually. Um, you know, they could go for a week to Virginia Beach. Or they'd go for a week to Myrtle Beach, you know, and sometimes Scotty would be with them in the hopes of sort of pulling the family together. Now, how incredibly strange and painful those vacations were. They uh. had to be in there as well. Um, and also, I mean, just living at the Garden of Allah, where his neighbors are Dorothy Parker and Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's no, you know, in, in, in the biographies, there are no scenes. You know, it's just as mentioned, you know. Dorothy Parker and Scott probably had had an affair back in the 20s when they were in New York, and now he's living at the Garden of Allah where she is one of his neighbors. I'm like, okay, well, I want some scenes there. I've got to have some scenes there. Well, it's a, so being it, able to come up with that stuff, is, I mean, that's the opportunity that you see as a novelist. Right. Well, and that's a pretty rich, I mean, it's a really uh, interesting time in Los Angeles history. I'm out in Los Angeles, but, uh, you know, that stuff, that element of the book was of particular fascination to me because... Uh, so much has changed, obviously. Los Angeles today is not the Los Angeles of the 1930s. And um, it's it's a really interesting situation to put a writer like Fitzgerald in, even though he was on, um, you know, down on his luck and was essentially a, a non-entity in the American literary culture at the time. Uh, he was not accustomed to working in the Hollywood system. And, um, you know, the system back in the 1930s was... Uh, what is it, pretty rigid, you know, the studio system back then. You were sort of owned. Well, I mean, the, the writer, as today, the writer is, you know, the, the low man on the totem pole there. But at, at the same time, he's surrounded by people that know him and respect him as an artist. You know, living there at the Garden of Allah or working there at MGM, you know, there are people like Aldous Huxley and James M. Cain and S.J. Perlman and Robert Benchley, John Logan Stewart, they all know Fitzgerald. I mean, he's among friends, and he's among people that realize how good of a writer he really is. So he's a bit of a fish out of water in that he's dead broke while they're sitting there comfortable with you know lots of money and some of them already have their Oscars, um, but they know who he is. So in a way, he finds a home out there. Yeah, I mean Los Angeles is that. I mean it's a, it's kind of like a place where people show up from all over and uh, no one's really from here. You know, <laughs> and, is, and and there's that that idea of a colony, right? You know. The Garden of Allah definitely worked as a kind of colony. There's also the British colony there at the time, which he's tied into through Sheila Graham and some of you know David Niven and other people. And then there's, of course, the, the new German colony, because Brecht is out there, Thomas Mann, and Lionel Furtwängler, and Eric Maria Remarca. And it's, is it by chance that the first major film that he works on is Three Comrades, you know, an anti-Nazi film? Um, it's, you know, so there's lots and lots of rich stuff to work with. Well, and yeah. It, yeah, and it's it, a, it, to remind to remind the, the the reader that Fitzgerald was a very political guy. Yeah, yeah, and and like the thing too about uh, Los Angeles at the time is that uh, it was a much smaller city. I mean, it can it can still feel small when you're working in entertainment, and you can you know everybody sort of knows everybody. Uh, strangely enough, even in a city this big, there's only you know there's only so many people actually 
pulling the levers in the world of entertainment. And it seems like people often know one another. But back in those days, you know, the city was a fraction of the size uh, that it is now. Uh, it must have felt much more like a colony or a village. And there must have been maybe more of a sense of um, camaraderie or interconnectedness. Certainly among the writers, there's great camaraderie there because they see themselves as being opposed to the studio heads, the studio system, the producers there who are sort of, you know, taking advantage of their work. But at the same time, I think they realized how lucky they were to be getting paid because they were making an incredible amount of money for the middle of the Depression. Right. there. The other thing is with a small town thing is that everybody knows when something goes wrong. Everybody knows when you win an award or something, but everybody also knows when you get fired off of a job right. um, or where a film is taking away from you there. And so I, I think Scott suffered a little bit from that because he was very proud about you know, his ability to write. Um, and then a, a film would be taken away from him, and another film would be taken away from him, and another film would be taken away from him. And so he was always sort of searching after you know, those screen credits that he needed to get hired again, to get re-upped there. And uh, I want to talk about Sheila Graham. Uh, who, in in her own way, is kind of a, a Hollywood character. Talk about a rags to riches story. Oh, she's so great! I mean, uh, of all the people to get involved with, she's a gossip columnist, right? And, and a very and a very ambitious gossip columnist at that. And she comes over in the heyday of you know Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons and says, "I'm going to be on a par with these two. Um, and she basically makes it happen through kind of sheer will and hustle. Um, she's really, really an interesting character and very ambitious and very capable. Um, and, and for Scott, I think he was always drawn to um, what we, we would call, I guess, the new woman, right? I mean, Zelda is, is a new woman for 1917 or 1918, right? Independent, doesn't care what other people say, doesn't play by other people's rules. And, and Scott is drawn to that. By the mid-30s, he's drawn to someone like Sheila Graham, who seems to be at least 20 years ahead of her time. You know, she's out there on her own, making her own way, uh, you know, playing by her own rules. She doesn't need a man to help her. She doesn't need anybody else. Um, and I think Scott was really drawn to that independent streak in her. And this is a woman who was orphaned. I mean, she comes. She came from extreme poverty. Extreme poverty, the East End, the slums of the East End in London. There, um, and has found a way to make it with you know with all with her looks and her guile and her wits, um, and just you know on her own. Really, really a fascinating character and very, very strong. Um, and so, with someone who echoed Zelda in a way, which is often the case, I find, like, you know, when you see men who, you know, have split from their uh, first wives, they, they wind up with a woman who, in some ways, reminds them of her. That doesn't seem too far too far fetched. A little bit. Of, in the case of Zelda, obviously, Zelda needed lots of help. I mean, Zelda, you know, once she's hospitalized in 1929, I mean, she she becomes less and less the independent, outspoken, smart, tough person that she was. I think Scott does try to sort of recapture a little bit of that with Sheila. But Sheila, I mean, just overall, was just always tougher. Uh, I think there was something, if, if not mercenary, then, you know, very businesslike about Sheila. I mean, she, she was accustomed to swimming in... Uh, swimming with sharks, to swim in the real world and to, to come out on top. Hmm. And of course, the book has to, you know, the book has to end. Uh, it's not a spoiler to say that it would end with uh, <laughs> Scott Fitzgerald's early demise. He died, he died so young of a heart attack. I mean, to be, what, what 44? 44. I mean, he was 44 years old when he died, which is, yeah, incredibly young, incredibly young. But, you know, some of the last pictures that were taken, I mean, you can just see it, that, you know, it, that he's been worn down. 
mm. completely worn down. I mean, tuberculosis, um, and his heart was bad, um, smoked too much, drank too much, didn't eat right, just worked way, way, way too hard, pushed himself way too hard. Um, yeah, 44 is incredibly young. And the, so there's a little bit of that Mozart effect that we look back now at Fitzgerald and we say, oh my God, here's this neglected genius that, you know, here he is writing and no one's paying any attention to him and they're treating him madly. You know, oh, if only we could go back and give him his just due. Uh, you know, I mean, life doesn't work that way. Well, yeah, and it's like, I mean, like there's something uh, darkly comforting at times. Like I'll read, you know, I'll read bits about how at the time of his death, F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, The Great Gatsby had sold like 10 copies that year or something. Right, so, right yeah. So, so for any frustrated novelists out there listening, you know, it might provide some degree of comfort to think that like, hey, maybe posthumously. You know, like, right, because the posthumous success is so massive, is so large. I mean, the reputation is restored to... As we said, you know, possibly you know our greatest stylist uh, as, as an American writer of English. Um, but you know the work is there. I mean, obviously Gatsby is, is a masterpiece, and Tender as the Night is very good. And I think The Last Tycoon, which I must have read eight or nine times, sort of over and over while I was writing this book, um, seems really underread to me. And it seems it seems a book that more people should read and, and appreciate because the the prose is is up there with Gatsby and Tender as the Night. So do you have a sense, because this is something I think about sometimes, do you have a sense of why uh, certain books, or, or just any work of art, uh, is able to endure? Do you, know, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, why is a book like The Great Gatsby, why does F. Scott Fitzgerald's work still resonate today? Um, you know, a lot of times I can read work from that same time period, it feels really dated and hard to access, right. but his work is still right there. What is it? Well, you know, Maureen Corrigan's written a book about, about Gatsby called, you know, So We Read On, um, about just this effect. Um, I mean, so many different variables go into it, but the fact that the book is so strong on, on, on character, so strong on plot, so strong on voice, the writing is so good, and I see it as, as being aimed toward a rather young audience, and the characters are young people. I mean, Nick is, is very young. Daisy and Tom act very, very young. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a melodrama. It's, it's got romance. It's got murder. You know, it's got a car accident in the middle of it. And it's really short. And the original edition was 218 pages with a fair amount of white space there. Uh, and it moves pretty quickly. It's eventful. Um, you know, it, it's, it, for its day, I think it would want it to be a popular novel. It didn't succeed as a popular novel back then. But I think nowadays it does. Hmm. Um, so in your research, uh, was there a particular, were there particular uh, books or pieces of source material that you found useful? Like, like what's, the, what's one of the better F. Scott Fitzgerald bios, if, any, you know, if anybody out there is interested? I, you know, none of the bios were really that, that key to me, because the problem with the bios is they can't bring you close enough. They're not intimate. They're, they can't make it. You know, they can't make that stuff live dramatically in front of you. The scene writing in most of the bios is, is kind of lacking. I think um, the things that really worked for me most were the letters. Um, there's especially there's a collection of letters between Scott and Zelda uh, that came out about 15 years ago. I think it's uh, Dear Scott, Dear Zelda, uh, which just sort of tracks you know the letters that they wrote back and forth from the 20s all the way to 1940 when when Scott died, um, and that that brought me a lot closer to them. And what about their marriage? Like, what did you learn about them? You know, because there's. Uh... They could be competitive with each other. I think sometimes oh, he, very, he very felt, much so. He felt threatened yeah. by her, you know, because she was a very talented and, and, writer. 
Yeah, and, and, and vice versa. I mean, obviously, she was always looking for something that she could excel at, you know, the, the way that you know, he was held up as, you know, the, this paragon of writing. She was always looking for that thing, whether it was dancing or painting or writing or, or anything like that, because she was very talented. Um, and, and looking at, you know, their marriage across time, obviously, that, that, that battleground that they had from about 29 to about 33 or 34 when they were fighting over the material, they, they fought bitterly there. And that question of, you know, who is a professional writer versus who is an amateur writer um, got very, very bitter between the two of them. Well, yeah, and then you also have to look at Zelda in the context of her times. Like, you know, life for women back in those days was not uh, all that great when it came to uh, professional life. And you know, uh, oh no, not not at all. And that that was part of it too. You know, because she was a woman, she couldn't be as professional as Scott. Um, and yeah, and they fought bitterly over that. But by the time that I'm writing about them, thirty-seven and onward, a lot of that fight has been taken out of Zelda because she's been hospitalized for so long, and the supposed cures that they've been giving her have really broken her down. She's taking electroshock therapy. She has insulin therapy. Um, so she's little by little, she's being wiped out. Um, and that seems obvious to me in, in, in her letters and in their correspondence. It, um, it can be really terribly bad. Yeah, it is. And it, can be, and it can be a little bit alarming sometimes when you read about uh, the cures of days past, you know, like where the medical profession was with all of this authority back in the day. When and, were... and in a way, and in a way, still is. Yeah, I right? know, I, mean, I know. You're like people ask me, you know, what what did Zelda have? And nowadays, people would call it some sort of bipolar disease. But is that any closer to really helping her out? I don't know. I mean, back then they called her schizophrenic. Right. I don't think that diagnosis helped her out at all. Right. Uh, I just remember, so, like, like, people, like, what was it, like, when they used to, like, bleed people out? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, I mean, insulin, insulin therapy is kind of like that, wow. you know. Um, it's basically taking the life out of the person so that they can't act badly. Um, you know, and I think, I think, in retrospect, I think Scott was a bit what we would call bipolar as well. Because he had these wild, wild mood swings and these manic episodes. I think they're really well matched that way. Um, they kind of fed each other that way in their in their manic modes. Um, well, and I, I feel like that. Hemingway Hemingway had that too. I mean, like mania can be uh, useful to a writer. I mean, not that it's not right. That, not, that it well, not that it doesn't have its downsides, but I mean, a lot. Yeah, of, most of us are very compulsive part people, right? I mean, we're able to sit down with that page and work that page over again and again and again and again and again, where anyone else would say, geez, just give it up. You know, just, it's good enough. And we're like, no, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> I need to fix this thing, you know. And even after it's published, you look at it and you're like, oh, crap, you know, I can make it better. Uh, so that's a, good, that's a good place for me to transition into asking about you. Like, how has Stuart Onan, like, uh, avoided the becoming... <laughs> F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, you've published what fourteen, <laughs> fourteen novels. Uh, you're still married. You live. You know, it seems like you're you're, you're healthy. You're still productive. Like, uh, how, how, yeah. How, how have you managed to do it? You know, why well, I think that the the advice that I'm taking, besides Scott's advice, of you know, this is what I meant to do. You know, I'd rather write novels than anything. I don't want to direct film. I don't want to you know be an artist. I don't want to be a dancer. I just want to write. Um, and the advice of Flaubert, right, which is to be you know, regular and bourgeois in your in your private life, so you can be wild and original in your art. Um, and that's that's the hope, is that you know everything feeds into getting you back to the desk. Um, and Fitzgerald said about his writing life, the history of my writing life is you know everything is conspiring to stop me from writing. 
you know, from getting back to the desk. So it's always about getting back to the desk because that's where the good stuff's going to happen. You've got to be sitting there. And this is something you always wanted to do going back to childhood? No, no. I was an engineer. I was trained as an engineer. My father was an engineer. His father was an engineer. And I grew up during, you know, the Apollo program. So I, I gravitated toward aerospace. And I worked in aerospace for about six years. But I've always been a big, big reader. I mean, I've always loved reading from, you know, way back to the, you know, comic books, horror comics, you know, Tarzan novels, science fiction, mysteries, you know, World War II adventure things. Um, I've always been a huge, huge reader. And uh, Saul Bella said, a writer is simply a reader who is moved to emulation. And I think that's what happened with me because I didn't have a plan. Suddenly I just started coming home from work and working on short stories. Um, in my hours off. And when you, when you say you were an engineer working in aerospace, like what does that mean? You were designing rockets? or uh, I was working in test engineering. We were, we were testing airframes. I was working at Grumman Aerospace out on Long Island. So we were working on the airframes of planes like the F-14, and the E-2C, the A-6, uh, later on the A-10 contracts that we got from Fairchild Republic. Um, so just you know, you know, running experiments. Um, breaking planes, basically, to see where they would break and how we could fix them and make them stronger. And is, um, has that has, has that sort of work? Is that, anything that you learned in, in your studies and in, in your professional life as an engineer served you well in terms of uh, building novels? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's an idea of, of you have to have a, an eye for the larger picture, but also the smaller components as well, because they've, they've all got to work together. Um, so, again, big picture, big structure, how things are put together, um, how they work, how they work upon one another, uh, how they impinge on one another. And also, the, you know, the, the, what's the word for it, the strictures of the real world. What would really happen? How would this actually play? It's not simply something that's written down on paper, but what would this do in the real world? Um, I mean, you can, you can design the most beautiful plane in the world, but if it doesn't fly, it's pointless. Right. Um, um, so, and the eye for detail, willingness to change, willingness to experiment, um, willingness to, to look at the results of experiments and say, oh, this isn't working. Um, and, you know, and compulsiveness, the idea of, of taking on problems and looking at problems and saying, what's, what's the most, what's the best way of addressing? What's the singular solution here? Is there a solution here? And if there's no full solution here, can we sort of assume something else to equal zero so we can come up with a, a workable solution? So are you compulsive as a writer? I mean, obviously, anyone who's doing it regularly, there's that element to it. But, I mean, are you, will you just noodle with something until all hours? Do you have a hard time pushing away from the desk once you sit down? Um, you know, I, I'm, at this point, I'm pretty patient. I think earlier on, I was, I'd, I'd put in longer, longer hours and, and, and press a little bit harder. Uh, but now I sort of sit back a little bit more. And, you know, I try to get one double space page a day, you know, 300 words. And if they're good, they're good. And if they're not good, well, I can fix them later. Um, and sometimes I get a little bit more. And sometimes, you know, usually I get a little bit more. Um, but I think early on, because I didn't start writing until I was in my mid-20s, I felt that I had to make up for lost time. Mm. Um, but nowadays, I don't, I don't think that nearly as much. And then what about the transition from uh, your work as an engineer into being a writer? Because, uh, you know, you've managed to pull off a rare feat where this is what you do. This is how you make your living. And I think a lot of people out there listening to this program uh, might be writers who have a day job, working full-time, wanting to write books, uh, coming to terms with how much work that entails and how much energy you have to expend just to get a book done. 
Um, but then balancing it against a, a day job, which makes things difficult. So like, how did that transition work for you? Well, when I, when I was working and I'd be working on my stuff, I, I'd bring my manuscript with me to work. And I'd say, you know, if I can get one sentence today, you know, while I'm at work, if I can get one sentence, move this forward, just one sentence, you know, I didn't want to lose that connection with the work. That's the hardest thing when you're working a day job. Um, you know, you're going to lose that connection to the work, and then you're going to have to take a lot of time to get back into it. So I always, always try to keep it with me the way that an actor keeps like a script with them so that if you have any free time, you whip it out and you work on it and you make that connection again. So you're talking like um, in your pocket or like in your briefcase? Like it's not on your person at all times, but just... In, in my pocket or in my briefcase, it could just be the last page that you worked on. Print that last page out and you know, maybe you revise it a little bit during the day. Maybe you write that one sentence further. It's always about pushing it a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. Just get, you have to keep it moving and you've got to keep connected to it. Um, and so whether it's in your briefcase or whether it's in your jacket pocket or your, your pants pocket, you know, have it there. So, cause there's going to be some downtime somewhere in the day. There's, you're going to have five minutes. And if in five minutes you can fix something from yesterday with fresh eyes, um, or if you can move it you know, forward one sentence, you know, that's, that's a huge victory, I think. Hmm. Um, that's, and, all, that's also really like, that's really, uh, logical and level-headed, you know, like, but it's also obsessive. Yes. <laughs> it's also terribly obsessive in that this is the most important thing to me. You know, not this job that I'm working at, not this paycheck that I'm getting for this job, but this story that I'm trying to write about this imaginary person means so much to me that I'm looking for any opportunity to work on it. And at that, um, point, in your, at that point in your writing life, were you thinking, like, I'm going to do this for a living? I'm going to find a no. way? No. No, definitely not. It's, it's what I wanted to do, but to actually make a living with it, it did, just didn't seem possible. You know, and often it doesn't seem possible um, nowadays, but I've gotten, you know, I've gotten a lot of breaks. Um, and my wife has been, like, really super, super supportive. I mean, she's the one that said, look, you know, you're not paying me any attention, you're not paying the kids any attention, you're not paying the house any attention. You don't really pay your job that much attention. All you want to do is to read and write, so why don't you try to do that for a living? And I'm like, well, that's crazy. That's just nuts. Um, because you can't get paid for it. I mean, I was, you know, I would, I would publish, you know, a, a short story on a magazine, and I'd be lucky if they gave me forty bucks, you know, and that, and that, that would represent four months' work. Yeah. Know, $40. And speaking, and speaking, are we gonna live on ten dollars a month? I don't uh, think so. Well, no. And speaking of which, like, it's like that's another thing about reading about like the jazz age and the, especially the first half of the twentieth century in America is just how much money like, you could make a living writing short stories. That always galls oh, me. Well. I can't, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Fitzgerald was being paid, you know, big, big bucks for these short stories. Yeah. yeah they were living pretty high, yeah. And even uh, Salinger, when he starts writing for the Saturday Evening Post, he's making some decent money there, too. So, and Vonnegut, I mean, I mean, there used to be that kind of venue. It, it, it's not like that anymore. It's hard to even, ima uh, it's hard to even imagine it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's not part of our time, but... Uh, but you know, but but you know, since I went back to Cornell for my MFA back when I was, I think I was about thirty years old, um, and that gave me some time to work with. That was the most important thing. It gave me three, about three and a half years um, to just sort of concentrate on my writing uh, without you know any like onerous day job. Yeah, I taught a little bit there, you know, but it wasn't like you know, it was, I wasn't working seventy-two hours a week like I was in engineering. Um, and I, I took advantage of that time. I wrote four books when I was there at Cornell. Wait, you wrote, you wrote four books in three years? Four books in three and a half years up there, yeah. Holy yeah. And th three of them ended up getting published eventually. Um, 
but it, it, it's getting that work done, getting it in hand so that when something breaks, when someone says, oh, do you have a novel you can show me? You say, why, yes, I do. Um, and it's in pretty good shape, you know, and, and you've already gotten it where you want it to be so that when they say, oh, let me see it, you can give it to them and you know it's, it's where you want it. So what is it? What did your regimen look like? I mean, you get you finally get you get to Cornell and you can finally really uh, channel your energies fully into writing. Like, uh, did you develop a, a regimen that you've carried forward in your career? Like, are you an early morning guy? Like, wh- how do you do the work? I, I, I'm a nine to five guy. I mean, I, I'm still I'm still I think probably you know going back to those engineering days. As you know, you wake up, you try to get try to put as little between you and the desk as possible. You know, I mean, you try to get up and get to the desk as fast as you can without anything getting in the way. Um, sit down at the desk and just start working from last night's revisions. Um, key those in. You're going to fix those as you put them in. You're going to change those as you put them in. Those changes will spark other change, and maybe you can get some momentum going. So in that eight hours, you can get that one page because you just want to move it forward a little bit. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to write the whole damn novel all at once, you know, little by little, be patient there. Yeah, pay, a, pay, um, a page a day, if you, if, you work, if you work 300 days in a year, there you go, right? Right, right, it piles up. And, you know, the, the two kinds of books I seem to write nowadays are, one book's around 400 to 450 a manuscript, the other one's between, like, 170 and 250 a manuscript. You know, so those short books, sometimes those can take only, you know, eight, nine months, you know, maybe with a little research thrown in. There, so that's that's really not that long. No, uh, when you think of it, it's not. It's not. I mean, not on the ten-year plan like Franzen, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, I, that would drive me insane. I just, I just wouldn't have the. Or Donna Tart, uh, she's that way too. Or uh, well, William H. Gass, right? The tunnel, you know. Um, I, I want to get it done the best I can possibly get it done. Show it to some friends; they'll help me see what I have, and then I'll try to revise it, and then get it off the desk, and and move on. I mean, I, I have. I have patience, and I have a high threshold for boredom, but I don't have an you know infinite attention span. There. So, um, like the day after you finish a book, do you, are you are you back in the office the next day working on the next thing? Do you give yourself any time off? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not there the very very next day, but I'm starting to think, you know, you should be up there because you don't want to waste that time. You don't want to waste that that time that you could be sitting there working because it's so hard to come by. Right, you know, and so many people want it. So many people work so hard, and here you are. You shouldn't be wasting it. Where do you Where uh, do you work in your house? Do you have like a writing? Uh, up in my attic. Uh, okay. Up in, up in my my blissfully unheated attic up there. So it's like really, really hot in the summer, and it's really, really cold in the winter. Um, but it keeps you somewhat alert. I was going <laughs> to. Uh, um, yeah, throw a blanket over your lap, and you know, get the space heater cranking. But I mean, you forget about that once you once you sort of fall into the work, and when, when things are going well, you kind of forget about where you are, and you know, it just it just needs to be a place where you're just comfortable, right? There, and I, we've been in this house now for you know seven years, so it's 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 pretty comfortable up there. And you're no intrusions. Like, do you have any problems with the internet? Like, do you, do you or do you write by hand? Like, do you how do you do your drafting early? Um, I just I just I've, I have a, a little word processor that it's not tied into the internet at all. It's all it is is my word processor. Which is great because when you punch a key, something happens. You know, there's there's no time lag whatsoever. You know, all the other computers in the house that are somehow tied into the internet, you hit a button, nothing happens for like 20 seconds. Right. Um, so it's 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 you know, keep it simple. Keep it as simple as possible. So when you, you know? say word processor, is this like one of those things from like the the mid 90s? Like the there was just like a you could feed paper into it and it would print out too. Um, like what is it? No, no. This this is this is more of it's just sort of like a laptop. Okay. You know. It's a laptop, but the only thing on it is the word processing program. There's like nothing else. 
um, nothing at all. So, so it's very it's very responsive. Um, it's enforced discipline. <laughs> yeah. You don't even give yourself the option. See, that's the I feel like the internet is the. It's a it's a tricky thing because you can it's it's wonderful for research. So like when you have right. when you have to do research, you're doing book research. You're not, and if you, I guess if you have to get online, you can go downstairs. Well, I mean, the, the the real temptation is to read another book that's sitting there in the office because the office is you know my office is lined with bookshelves that are filled with books that are great books, and it's so much more pleasurable to walk over to the bookshelf, take a book off the shelf, and start reading it. You know, when you're supposed to be sitting there trying to figure out what the next damn sentence is. Mm. Um, so, I, really, the temptation is more reading than internet, because uh, the internet's more frustrating than anything. I think. Um, whereas, you know, reading James Salter is always an intense, intense <laughs> pleasure. You know, you don't get I'd much rather read light years than do like anything else in the world or a sport in the pastime. I'd rather just read that than than work. Uh, but Flannery O'Connor was really good about that. She said, you know, that's one of the things that young writers have to look out for is using your writing time to read. Don't do it. You're supposed to be writing. You're supposed to be sitting at your machine. And that's what, she, you know, she's right. Sit at your machine. Um, if you have the privilege to do it, then do it. That's right. So, and what about, uh, you mentioned you got some lucky breaks in your career. Uh, I'm curious to hear you oh, talk because it sounds like you obviously have the work ethic and the discipline to get in front of your machine and, and to, you know, advance the, advance the book on a day, on a daily basis. But, uh, all of us need to get at some point, uh, a, a break or two in order for things to go our way, especially if we're going to wind up making our living writing books. Like do, what is your, you know, perception of luck and the role that it's played in your life and in your career? Well, huge. I mean, just, just gigantic. And certainly in, 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 you know, my publishing history, uh, you know, the first book I published was, uh, was the Drew Hines Prize um, winning short story collection. Tobias Wolf chose it from, like, you know, 400 other manuscripts. You know, he chose mine. Um, that's not, and having been a judge for that prize as well as many other prizes, you know, it's, it's you know, when does it hit you? What part of the day? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very arbitrary. Um, there's no... There's no rhyme or reason, right? I mean, if you're among the top 15 or 20 manuscripts, you might get chosen. You never know. So, I mean, many years I would apply for that particular prize, and I would not win it. And this particular year, Tobias Wolf happened to be the judge, and he chose mine. So well, that and that changed that changed you know, whatever trajectory I was going to have as a writer. Hmm. And like, what is it? Medium. Speaking of judging these things, I'm always curious when there's like 400 submissions, manuscript like book length submissions. Uh, like who's actually doing all that reading? That's a that's a big job. <laughs> yeah, well, often there are qualifying judges that that read, you know, that do sort of the heavy heavy lifting. So the GUS or the final judge are given, say, maybe a choice of ten manuscripts, which is not very difficult to do there. Or, or sometimes that is even harder because of those ten. You're like, wow, four of these could be the winner of the prize, you know. Um, and you know that making that one choice is going to change. The, the life and certainly the writing life of that particular writer. So how did it change for you? I mean, that must get, because like, especially early in a career, you win an award. It's got to feel good. It's got to make you feel like you're on the right track, give you confidence to keep going. And I got paid 10,000 bucks. Right. You know, where else is a short story writer going to get 10,000 bucks all of a sudden? So it made a huge difference to, to my family. Um, and, and then, of course, because I'd won it, um, it it got the attention of a lot of other agents. So I had an agent at the time, but that agent hadn't been able to sell my novel. Um, 
And a bunch of other agents came knocking on the door and said, hey, you know, do you have another novel you want to sell? And so I got a new agent because of that. And that new agent ended up selling my first novel, uh, Snow Angels, within like a month. Hmm. Uh, so suddenly I'd made the leap not just into the university presses, but to, at the time, Doubleday. You know, so suddenly I'm being published by a New York house. Did you make any changes with this? Did the new agent mm -hmm. recommend changes, or did she take the book out as is? Um, she was going to take the book out as is because uh, it, it had won another prize um, at the time. Uh, but um, another friend of mine said, you know, I think you've got you to rewrite that last chapter. If you can rewrite the last chapter, keep the pressure on the characters. So eventually I went back and I rewrote the last chapter, even though it had already won a prize, you know, with the original last chapter. And I think I came up with, with the right, the correct ending with the book. And at that, at that point when you sold that novel, like, was there a point in your career where you felt like, okay, I'm, this is it. I got this. It's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not even. No, never, never, Damn. never. That will never happen. Okay. That will never, ever happen. So even yeah. today, even I mean, what, today. What happens, what happens with the books outside beyond the desk, right, beyond your control? I mean, it, it's things will happen. You know, good things, bad things, indifferent things are going to happen to it. You have no control over that. Your hope is that you can just get back to that desk and keep working. It's like being an actor. You know, as long as you're working, everything's fine. You know, it's, it's when you stop working or when you start to worry about the things beyond your desk. Um, that, that's when things go bad, I think. Hmm. Um, and I think that, that happened a little bit to Fitzgerald, I think. I think <laughs> he started worrying about the reception of the books. Um, he, he worried about their sales. He worried about his, his status within the world of writers and you got to sort of put that aside and say, look, you know, you only have so much time. It's better to spend it writing. Well, that's the thing though. I mean, you really like the, the, I think it was the Flaubert quote that you uh, alluded to earlier. You know, uh, most of the writers I know and that I've talked to on this program who have been able to publish well and over many years, you know, publish many books, um, tend to have a, a very, um, Simple's not the right word, but a good home life, not a lot of drama. <laughs> you know, they, they've created they've created kind of an ecosystem around themselves that um, supports not only the work because uh, you know, as you've talked about, you have to get in front of that machine, but also just you know supports them as a human being. You have like a, a good life, and um, there's not a lot of like I feel like you know Fitzgerald's life was so tumultuous. The relationship, the alcohol, like it's amazing he got any work done, let alone work of that caliber. And the moving around, that's the crazy thing. Right. I mean, what you're hoping for is that you can have this place, this very quiet, sane place, where you can get your work done. Um, you know, just put down roots and just grow there, you know. And, and Fitzgerald just never had that. And he was always, you know, either running around the Riviera or the North Shore of Long Island or Westport or Delaware, Maryland or North Carolina or Hollywood. I mean, he just, there, there were no roots there. And did you ever have in your career, um, you know, after, like, you get to Cornell, you write these... That's an incredible run of work, by the way. Four books in three and a half years is pretty impressive. And then, um, you know, you start to win awards, you get published, Double Days now, you're your publisher, you've got a good agent. Um, is there any, any moment after that started to happen where uh, you experienced resistance or fell on hard times or were, were concerned that maybe things weren't going to work? Because, you know, th that that's kind of a... Uh, a dark side to this business in this day and age is that you can have all of that success. You can have the agent, you can have a publisher, you can, books can be in print, but that doesn't mean 
that things aren't perilous for you financially or personally or, you know, like how do you, how did you manage to muscle through? Um, you know, I've always been very lucky in that there's always been an editor or editors out there who are willing to take a chance on whatever that next book of mine is. Um, and when I, when I, I fell out with Doubleday over the whole Dear Stephen King controversy thing, and I had to find a new home, and I found a new home at Holt. And I had Tracy Brown as my editor at Holt. And then well, actually, Holt, actually, was... can I stop you just so that listeners who might sure. not be aware of the whole controversy can you like can you summarize that? Oh briefly? gosh, um, yeah. Um, my my third novel was titled Dear Stephen King. Uh, I'd say it's, it's a satirical road novel that's a little bit of Pulp Fiction ish, definitely uh, a uh, sort of a road noir. Um, but but wacky, like crazy wacky. And up until that time, I had been known as a writer of relatively earnest blue-collar uh, Americana. Um, and here was something that was completely, completely different, and I thought it deserved a title that signaled this to the reader. So Dear Stephen King seemed to me a little tribute to Gordon Lish's Dear Mr. Capote, um, and I thought it seemed sort of natural. Uh, but the lawyers out of Hollywood were not happy that I'd <laughs> used Mr. King's name. And so they came after Doubleday, and they came after my agent at the time and said, hey, you know, you got to get this title off of this book. Um, and being, you know, the, the young, stupid artiste, I was like, no, it's the right, it's the right you know, title. It's a, it conveys the right tone. It's, it's the right thing, you know, and I was willing to sort of go to the wall with it. Um, and nobody else was. Everyone's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. And I was like, oh, shit, well. Um, so I ended up losing my publisher, ended up losing my agent, um, and had to sort of start all over again at that point. I also lost the title. It ended up being called uh, The Speed Queen. And what did Stephen... It's not, what an, did, it's not an awful title, but, you know, what did okay. Stephen? What did Stephen King think of it? Well, I mean, personally, he was he was a fan. Um, you know, he, he ends up saying nice things about it. In uh, it's one of the books he recommends in his on writing book. <laughs> right. well, and you, uh, you know, and I, I appealed to him directly, and I said, you know, you know, here's my reasons, blah blah blah. But there's so many people that want a piece of him that I, I kind of understand that. Uh, but he did send me a copy of this privately printed uh, collection of short stories of his, and he, and he dedicated it to me and said, from your dear Stephen King. So, <laughs> well, and you, we became friends, and, you know, and you know, then later on did a book together about the Red Sox, which was another huge break. I was going to uh, say, you guys, so you guys should, I mean, uh, yeah, how, how much, could, how much uh, animosity could he hold towards you? You love his Red Sox. Right, you know? right. And, you know, and, we're, and we're, you know, we share a lot of the same roots, the same sort of pop culture roots. We love the same sort of junky movies and, you know, punk rock and, you know, goofy old horror comics and stuff. And the same writers like Richard Matheson and Shirley Jackson and Charles Beaumont. So it, it made sense that we would become friends, and, you know, and we have. Um, <clears throat> but at the time, losing my publisher and my agent at the same time. How old, were you, um, how book, old were you when that happened? And how many books into your career well, were you? 19, it was 1997. It was my third novel. Um, so I was 35 years old, 30, 35, 36 years old. Anyway, it was, it was my third novel. And this is the novel that was going to sort of jump, was going to leap me. Um, I, I just, I'd just been named one of the Granta you know, 20 Young Best Writers um, and this was the book that then was going to follow that. And it kind of got the, the legs cut out from underneath it. Um, so luckily, Holt, Tracy Brown at Holt, was willing to give me a chance for my next book. Um, and then my second book at Holt was the Holt Bloodbath. Uh, that's when everybody got fired. I mean, the president of the company got fired. My editor got fired. Uh, my publicist got fired. Everybody that I knew at Holt 
was gone by the time that my book came out. <laughs> no, that's but you know that's not that uncommon of a story. I feel like publishing. I know people are always jumping jobs and publicists leave in the middle of a book's run, and you're just like, oh. Well, but this was this was the bloodbath. This was like everybody. This was like you know blood in the, blood in the hallways, um, and I was like, oh shit. So I so I, I lost you know my editor and my publisher at that point as well, and had to go elsewhere. Um, and you know, and that's happened to me relatively consistently. I mean, there's been several books that came out when I was already gone from the publishing house or my editor who was, you know, had worked on the book and had been its champion was also gone from the house. But I always end up getting kicked upstairs somehow. I, I mean, well, that's I better than up. getting better than getting kicked downstairs. Right? Well, I, well, I, well, first you get kicked out. <laughs> first you're, you're out on the street and you have to find a new publisher and that always takes time. And especially when you're not getting paid, that's hard. Right. Um, so to, to have to sort of look for another publisher, you know, luckily, you know, with, with you know, my, my track record, there are people that have been willing to take a chance. Um, and, and, you know, that's great. And that shows us sort of the generosity uh, that, that people have in New York. You know, they're willing to take you on after, you know, 10 or 12 books. Yeah, well, that's the thing, though, is that they're willing to take you on, but you also have a proven track record. Like, you're a producer. You, you, books get done. They're good. Um, well, you know, you, you hope, you never know. I mean, not, not everybody's going to be good. You know, you can work your ass off in a book and it can still suck. Um, that's just, that's just writing. Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting point to make. Cause I was going to, I was just about to ask you like, you know, uh, having published many books, uh, some of which have done well, some of which haven't done quite as well. Like, do you have any sense of why, like why a certain book connects and why others don't? Like, do you think that, um, like the, the publicity work that authors tend to do, the book tour, uh, podcasts, social media, whatever it is that um, you know is available to authors in whatever day and age. Do you think doing that stuff has an impact? You know, in, in the old days, at least, uh, you know, you could do all that stuff. But if you had a killer cover, you'd rather have the killer cover. You know, um, there, there there's books that are, are just good looking books that the reader or that the, the buyer at the bookstore is going to pick up. Um, I, I want to say that booksellers probably have more to do with with a book sales than publicity. Um, um, also librarians as well. If you have librarians and booksellers who are putting your book into people's hands, then you can get some of that word of mouth going. But I mean, unless you're sort of, you know, up there in that sort of top echelon where the house is going to put actual marketing money behind you, which is very, very rare right. for a literary writer. I mean, very, very rare. Unless you're up there in that echelon, you're just not going to get that. So that you have to rely on that that you know word of mouth and one book one reader, you know matching that book to that reader and and no one does that better than librarians and independent booksellers. So are you in touch with those people? Is that part of your strategy when you publish a book or over the years have you made a point to kind of get to know those folks? Oh, undoubtedly that that's part of the house's strategy now too. I mean, rather than you know blowing you know I don't know how much it would cost for say a full page ad in New York. Times book review, which of course you'll never get anyway. Um, they'd rather put it into sending me to the librarians' conventions or the independent booksellers' you know, trade conventions. Um, so if I can go there and maybe impress them, or if they can give away the advanced reading copy to them and have them read it and say, "Oh, you know, this is really well written. You know, maybe some of my clients would like this." And yeah, that's definitely you know, part of the attack for someone who is not among you know your your, your giant bestsellers. And you know, you mentioned matching the book with the reader, and you know you've been you've been at this for a while. You've, I'm sure, you've read to um, thousands of people at this point. 
do you have a sense after 14 books of who the typical uh, Stuart Onan reader is? Like, do you know, like, do, do you ever get surprised or do you have a, is there a type of person out there, a type of reader that you tend to run into who tends to really respond to your work? Um, it, it, it depends on, on, on which book it is. Um, I mean, not everyone's going to like every book. Um, so there are some fans for a book like Emily Alone. Um, and, and obviously those are going to skew a little bit higher and they're going to skew a little bit more female. My mom, um, by the, my mom, by the way, is a huge fan of that book. Well, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and the, there's some obvious identity politics that, that play into this, right? You know, and certain books that I've written are crazy books, like Speed Queen or Prayer for the Dying. Those are crazy books. Um, so the people that tend to like them, I always look at them and go, oh, I don't know. Um, you know, do, do you because, have? Do you have? I mean, you, you have a crazy streak. Do you think that you I mean? Because you seem you seem oh, like no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I have that. I, I don't know if it's crazy, but just letting the imagination just run, just let it let it go. You know, people always say I, I'll take it one step too far, um, which is great. I think you know when you're writing a book like Speed Cleaner, a book like Prayer for the Dying, or maybe even something like um, The Night Country. You know, taking it one step too far is what you want to do. But in your like, but in your like personal life, behavior, childhood, youth, were you ever like? Did you ever go wild? Do you have that? Uh, no, not really. No, I don't think so. Okay. No. It's in. Um, it's in. I, the, you save it for the work. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, I was a singer in a punk band for a little bit, but there you go. I, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say too too crazy. The stage dives. Anything? No. <laughs> um. Yeah. Not not involving too much blood. No. Okay. No, nothing too. Nothing too extreme. All right. Nothing beyond Iggy. Okay. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, and, but, but, but being able to feel that, being able to know that, I mean, Fitzgerald himself says, you know, what I need to write is an emotion that I can understand. Um, and, and I think, I think, I hope that, that I can understand most emotions. I may be, I may be mystified by them in the beginning. And usually that's a good place to start. You know, when, when I see something happen, human behavior that mystifies me, you know, like, like, like mothers who kill their children, you know. Right. And it's happened. It's happened in every human society. So it is human behavior, but it kind of mystifies me there. Or you know, or the estranged lover coming back to kill, you know, the ex-wife or the ex-girlfriend. You know, how does that happen? And yet it happens all the time. Um, the, the book I'm working on now is it's uh, set in Jerusalem in 1946, and it's it's the question is you know how do people who had survived the camps, the death camps in Europe. Like, months later, they turn around and they're using political violence against civilian targets. Right. How does that happen? And, and the more that I look into it, I'm more, how do they not? That's a much tougher question, right? Um, how do you not just pay that abuse forward? Right. Uh, um, so, yeah, so, did, you, did you travel? I'm curious, like, when you write, uh, like, I mean, did you spend time in Los Angeles for West of Sunset for the book that you're doing set in Jerusalem? Do you, do you feel the need to go there and actually see the place in order to write it, or can you do it all through research? You know, I, I feel the need for it, but at the same time, I know that those places don't exist anymore. Like, you know, Los Angeles from 1937. Um, I mean, there there may be sort of isolated buildings here and there. I mean, certainly there there's some on the Sony slash Columbia lot that were there at MGM. Um, but that that world is gone. Well, that, that city is, is way gone. I, you know, it's funny because I remember reading about F. Scott Fitzgerald's death, and, you know, he died at Sheila Graham's apartment. I think it's at, like, the corner of Hayworth. It's still there. Is it Hayworth and yeah. Sunset? It's Hayworth and Sunset? Is that where it is? Yeah, yeah, it is still there, and you can supposedly you can look through the ground floor window and see the mantle that he clutched as he was dying. Really? Yeah, yeah, okay. I did not go. 
I, uh, did, I did not do the morbid tour there. I, I drive by it every time I drive by it. I think of him, and <laughs> I, uh, I'm always like, "Is this the building, or has it, like was it torn down?" But it's the actual building. No, that is that's the actual building. That is the actual building, and 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 one of the people that I, I had the luck of meeting when I was in L.A. back in last year was his secretary, uh, Francis Kroll Ring, uh, who helped transcribe the last tycoon and worked with him on it when she was 18 years old. She's now 98. No kidding. Uh, so there are these links to that to that time and that place, um, but but the world itself and the feel of that world is gone. Certainly, Jerusalem is now you know. 15 times the size of what it was back in 1945-46, um, and a completely different feel to it. And much of, even, even the old quarter, the old Jewish quarter, was you know, gone, destroyed after 1948. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, but I feel the need. I definitely feel the need because I know that I'm ignorant. I, mean, I, I, I tend to write well outside of myself. I mean, I may be able to understand the emotions of the characters, but that world that they came from is usually completely foreign to me. Um, I mean, I'm not from L.A. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know anything about what it means to be uh, in the family of a prisoner who's, who's away for 25 to life. So that research gets me revved up and gets me interested. So I write towards my curiosity. Um, Joanna Scott always says, don't write what you know, write what you want to know. Um, but... That involves saying, look, I'm completely ignorant, I know nothing, and I have to learn. Um, and, and then you go to a lot of first-person sources that try to help you learn. Um, for the Jerusalem book, it's going to be much, much harder, I think. I'm, I'm hoping that once I get it into manuscript, I may be able to give it to some Israeli writers, partly of that generation, maybe the generation after, that can look at it and say, you know, jeez, you got this really wrong, you need to fix this. Well, I'm glad you've given yourself a, a very easy, small task. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's, you know, if you're not going to do something different or do something better, then why do it at all? Mm. You know, so, so the book that I find I, I'm drawn to more and more in the last, say, 10 years has been the book that's impossible. The book that you can't, you can't write it, you know, not, not only can't you write it, but you're not allowed to write it. So that when you're writing it, and you're trying to write it, knowing that you know, it's impossible. You have that feeling that you are trespassing, that you're like you're, you know, you're well over the line. You're way out on a limb, uh, and that's how I felt when I was writing the Fitzgerald book. I'm just way, way out on a very, very thin limb. Well, it was certainly a certainly great read, and and we're just thrilled to be able to feature it in the TMB book club and to get to shine a light on it, and uh, and by way of that, on on your entire body of work. And it's just been such a thrill to uh, to do that and to have a chance to talk with you, and I just really appreciate the time. Oh, well, thanks, Brad. Thanks for taking the time and, and, and for, you know, supporting literary fiction. My God, you know, there's, there's, there's no more noble goal, I think. All right, guys, there you go. That's Stuart Onan. His novel is called West of Sunset. It's available now from Viking. And uh, you can find Stuart online at stuart-onan.com. He's also on Facebook, and he's on Twitter, where his handle is at Stuart Onan. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, find out more about what they do. And don't forget to get the app, the official Other People app. My wife is texting me as I'm doing this, asking me questions. and uh, We're good, though. Uh, yeah, go get the app, the official Other People app. I'm coming, honey. Are you peeing? What's happening? Are you okay? Are you on the toilet? What's happening? Talk to me. Text me.
vlog me. Go get the app. The <laughs> Go get the official other people app. Why don't you do that? It's the best way to listen. Here's what you do. You get the app. The app is free. You get it onto your phone or your iPad or what have you. I don't care if you have an iPhone or an Android phone. doesn't matter. Get the app. The app is free. Once you get that app, you have the most recent 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to get uh, access to everything, all 340-something episodes, sign up for premium, 75 cents a month. There's different price tiers. You can pay uh, like $9. I, I forget. It's like 9 bucks for a year of access. Or you can pay $2 a month, which would be $24 for a year of access. It, you know, I try to tier it out so that uh, I can accommodate different budgets. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Say something to me. Email me. Talk to me. And don't forget to sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Get a book a month. Read more. Enrich your life. I'm trying not to be paranoid. I just want to let you know that. I know you got to be in the moment. That's what anxiety is. It's not being in the moment. It's living in the future. I know that that is ultimately uh, self-defeating and illusory. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to stay right here in the moment and enjoy this. My wife said that uh, she felt the baby kick, possibly, the other night. It could have been gas, but she thinks it was the baby like fluttering around in there. So we're starting to get to that stage. And I think we might be settling on a name. We're in negotiations. I think we're getting close. I think I know what it's going to be. I'm not going to tell you yet. I feel like nobody's going to like it. We're a little bit worried. Nobody in my family anyway. It's kind of a hippie name. It's not even kind of a hippie name. It is a hippie name. We like it. The fuck are you going to do? Please remember that Marguerite de Ra died on March 3rd, 1996, and that Edmund Wilson dismissed J.R.R. Tolkien's entire body of work as, quote, juvenile trash. That's it for now. Thanks again to Stuart Onan for taking the time to talk. Uh, go get his novel, West of Sunset. Thanks to Viking. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Appreciate the uh, the mail, the good wishes, the tweets. Follow the show over uh, on Twitter, at OtherPPL. Follow it on Facebook. You know the drill. What else can I plug? I don't know. I'm going to go back inside and uh, stand outside the bathroom door. I'm just going to go hover over my wife. Do you mind if I do that? That's okay, right? <laughs>